0: This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and D6 Conference hosted a track called Family Discipleship. How are you doing with family discipleship at your church? Well, D6 Conference has put together a free assessment to help you discern exactly how your church is doing at equipping parents to disciple their kids. This free assessment is called the Church Health Assessment and it's just 30 questions. They've even included scoring instructions so you can do the whole thing for free and it's self-guided. Download this at discipleship.org D6. It's a PDF available at discipleship.org D6. That's the letter D and the numeral six. Now here's one of the track sessions from D6.
1: I am beginning a session called Positioning Your Church for All Generations, Part 1. And if you intend to catch Part 2 of this, I'm teaching Part 2 at 8.15 in the morning. So you probably saw that in the schedule. I don't know why there's Part 1 in the gap, but that's the way the schedule is. I'm okay with that. You're probably tired of hearing me. And Lena from D6 is going to be in here in the next session. And uh, she's going to do an incredible job with uh, her track. So let's uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. And ask God to, uh, to really meet with us as we kind of <laughs> jump into this session, okay? Father, thank you. Thank you for navigating through the last topic of the last session, dealing with prodigals. Thank you for the receptive spirit of the audience and the difficulty of the topic. Lord, as we begin to talk through positioning our church for all generations, that's uh, a way that we need to help begin thinking about generations differently. Help us to be open. Help us to be receptive and help us to examine the context of our church in your name. Amen. All right. As we look at uh, this topic, positioning your church for all generations, and I'll state this at the beginning of each one of my topics, you're more than welcome to uh, grab pictures, uh, take as many notes, but I also am more than willing to share my PowerPoint with you, my slides with you. And so if you tell me, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. Many people gave me their cards at the end of my last session. I'm just going to take all three sessions that I'm teaching and putting in one Dropbox. So if you want one at the end of this session, you don't need to give me another card. You're going to get everything I'm doing all in one Dropbox. If you didn't and you want just this, no problem. Just give me your card. All I need is your email, a legible email, and I'll send you out an invite to a Dropbox within a couple of days And it'll be set up for about 30 days and it'll go away. So just download what you want uh, from there and feel free to use it uh, accordingly. Almost everything I'm teaching, though, comes from a book that goes a lot further in detail. If you want to dive in deeper, it's called The DNA of D6. And our table, our booth area, is at the bottom when you're facing the main corner. We're on the uh, left side as you're facing walking in the doors, the left side down on the end. And we have a number of parent ministry resources and uh, items to help you when it comes to family ministry and, and Deuteronomy 6, D6 itself. So positioning our church for all generations. What I want us to know is that when parents have a first child, they are an experiment. I shared that in the previous one. But what's most interesting about that topic is whatever we figured out with our oldest, we tend to think it should work with everyone that comes after them, and it does not. We all know that. We have different children. They act different ways. And so we, we want to treat them like the next, and that becomes part of the fallacy of, of what we're going through. If the church equips, how can it best help parents to launch their kids? If we are truly an Ephesians church where our job is to equip the saints, then parents are part of that. Grandparents are part of that. And what I want us to recognize is that our goal is to help parents launch their kids successfully. What does the psalmist say about our kids? They're like arrows in the quiver. We're supposed to take them out and fire them. Moms, they're designed to leave home. Okay? That's God's purpose, His intention. Dads are like, the sooner the better, okay? Moms are like, no, no. I mean, we just went through the emptiness for us. Uh, you know, we're literally our kids were kind of on that path about four or five years ago. But both of our kids got married this year. And so, you know, my wife and I are navigating new territories with coming up on the holidays. Because now we're finding out from our son who married a young lady. And I had to remind my wife, when we first got married, we favored your family, going home to your family. That's what we're going to feel now with our son. And so we need to help our parents navigate those changes of seasons and what's going on, because if not, there's going to be all kinds of friction, and there's going to be dysfunction added to it. So let me ask you a question. Do we strive for excellence in events with our church, or do we strive for a change in culture? Most churches go for the top. They would say they do both, but I've sat with enough church staffs in consulting, and I've sat in as a observer to their staff meetings, and 98% of the time, 98% of what goes on in a staff meeting is all designed for how can we have an excellent service on Sunday morning. Everything they talk about is about excellence of what happens on the campus of their church. Very few. If ever it ventures off, it's usually about somebody who's going through Some benevolent item or a sickness item, and how can we help them? It's never preparatory in a spiritual area. And so if we want to make a difference as a church, we've got to ask how to change the culture. And if we're going to change the culture outside the church, if we're going to change the culture outside of the church, to get to a change outside, we've got to change what happens on the inside first. We will never make a difference over here until we make a difference inside of ours. Because the problem with our churches is we're only going to do what we've observed happen to those who have came before us. I teach a life group based on the way I've observed people who taught it before me. I do church the way the people have observed, I've observed that came before me. And it takes us going to a conference, reading a book. And then when you go back, the hardest part is transferability. How do you transfer what you've learned here to the excitement level to somebody who did not make the conference, who didn't read the same book? And so part two of this this talk tomorrow morning is I'm going to take you through the eight steps of change, absolute proven way you walk an organization through change, okay? This is not just my material. It's some of the leading experts on how you affect change, and you'll see a very step-by-step process that will work if you'll stay at it, okay? Okay? So let's look at the four C's of parenting. Bruce Johnson actually talked about the four C's of parenting. Anybody ever attended a J.H. Ranch in this part of the area I think that might know it in here? J.H. Ranch, you've heard of it maybe, okay? Bruce talks about this at the camp experience or the ranch experience. I encouraged him, this was about eight or nine years ago, I encouraged him to write it down, to, to put this in a book, and we were interested in publishing it. And he was just too busy And to this point, he has still never written the book. So every time I talk, I say, okay, the four C's, the basic concept of these four names of these stages, I credit him with it. And I've added to his talk, and I've added different layers to it because I think it's very effective and it's most memorable. So the four C's of parenting, first we have the caregiver from birth to age two. Those of you who are parents, you know what that means. You change their diapers. You change their clothes. You fed them. You burped them. You did everything for them. They, they didn't get to their bed to sleep without you putting them in their bed. You were their caregiver. And so you did, did all things. Then from about age 2 to 11, you became the cop. Okay? This is where you let them know the consequences for their actions. Whatever your discipline was, you let them know, hey, if you do this, this will occur. Now, I don't really care to dive into the discipline side other than this. Remember this as a parent or a grandparent. What's the root word of discipline? Disciple. Your goal is not punitive. It's redemption. There may be a punitive aspect to it, but you're trying to redeem the heart and redeem the actions to point them in the right direction. And they need to feel that regardless of what methodology you use. The third C is coach. Coach happens from age 12 to 18. Now... I best illustrate that with this line up here. I coached soccer for 11 years, recreational soccer. That's during the time our kids played soccer. And we would get there on practice nights, usually Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, and we would practice. I could get out there on the field with them. We'd kick the ball. We'd go through drills. We'd have practice in there. But come game day, come game day, there was a line and there was a box. I couldn't cross. As a coach, I could give them all the pep talks, but I had to put them out on the field, and I had to stay right here even though I watched them mess up. I watched them blow it. I could yell at them from a distance, but I can tell you most of the time they couldn't hear me as loud and I can be loud by the way. But they didn't, you know, they were doing their thing, but come halftime, I'd pull them aside. Okay, here's what you did really well. Here's some things we executed really really nice. Here's some things we got to work on. And there was always one in there that didn't pass, was selfish with the ball, whatever. I would talk to them. As much as I wanted, to just put them on the bench, I didn't. I put them back in the game. Because they've got to go back out and show team. That's what happens in parenting as a coach. We are teaching our kids, like arrows in the quiver, how to leave the quiver. And so we're dry firing, to use Stu Weber's concept in Tender Warrior, we're practice firing them down range. and we're letting them out of the home going and staying with grandparents or going you know and doing key events with the youth group we're letting them get out in the field and you know what sometimes we're looking out there and we're going man they're messing up and we pull them back together we coach them again and then we let them go do it again we trust them again that's grace that's what God does why is it that we parent more difficult than our heavenly father parents us We are more hard, we are harder, more hard. Wow. You're recording this too, Cameron. Yeah, Yeah, we need to edit that one out. I'm sorry. We are more stringent in our parenting style with our kids than we wish our Heavenly Father would be with us. So just think through that from a discipleship aspect. God is trying to teach us discipleship while He's disciplining us. And then we have the fourth C, which is the consultant role. As I just admitted, our kids are in the consulting stage. Now the questions go from, hey, Dad, I'm buying car insurance for the first time. Which I was going, yay! <laughs> You're kind of cheering. What do I need to look at? And I'm walking them through those three numbers of liability and all that. You know, This is what you need to think through. Hey, Dad, I'm making this recipe. I cooked in the family, okay? I'm making this recipe. How do I make this? And it's the simple things. But we're in the consulting role, okay? Now, Bruce didn't talk about the fifth C that I've added to this, and it's a common one, and all of you know what it is. Anybody? Yeah, this is that parent who wants to take that caregiver and cop and stretch it all the way to their oldest child, and they're that helicopter parent. They want to do everything. This is the parent that the college professor gets a phone call from when their child makes a C-minus going, Why did my child make a C-minus? You know, you can't do that. That's why our kids don't have resiliency today. That's why they haven't learned to get out there and do it on their own because we crossed that coaching line. Or more importantly, I'll get into this in a moment, we stayed in the cop mode way too long. The uh, diagram up here, I'm using kind of generic terms. It comes from the DNA of D6. But the parent and the kid, the generic term is K, kid. I don't care if this stands for child or teenager or young adult. I'm using the generic term kid, okay? So you your kid. Where those two circles overlap is your influence, and it's really important that they overlap. So this is an extra layer I'm adding to Bruce Johnston's talk here. I want us to take a look at the caregiver. Remember, this is birth through age two. With you doing everything, there's a whole lot of overlap. That child is with you a lot. They're learning you. In fact, this is kind of funny. You've reminded me, I'm not trying to point you out, but you, you've reminded me of something my wife did. When she was expecting, in the very final couple of months, she was expecting in the heat of the summer, and she was like, she would go, mmm. Our child for the first two months of his life went, mmm. He would mimic her after he was born, those same exact sounds. In other words, that overlap, that influence is carrying over, and everything we do, they're learning. They're mimicking they're sounding it out because we have a lot of influence in their lives. But when we move into the cop mode, they're going off to school. So not only are they mimicking mom and dad, now they're mimicking their classmates. They're learning from their classmates. I read, um, it's funny when you edit things quickly on the fly mentally. I was reading this morning from, from somebody who sent us an email at, at Randall House in D6 that their nine-year-old learned about porn from a classmate in school, and they thought, I wouldn't have thought they would have learned that early. You know, once they're exposed to other areas of influence, parents have this much influence over their child, but what about all of this other time? We don't have sole influence over our child the older they get. There's other people trying to jockey for their time, their beliefs, their values. When they become a teenager, that overlap gets even smaller. Because now they're away from mom and dad even longer. I love it. I've been a publisher for 15 and a half years. I love it when somebody comes to us going, I want to write a book on parenting. Tell me about your kids. Yeah, I have four kids. They're two, they're four, they're six, and they're eight. I'm like, great, come back to me in five years and we'll talk about that book on parenting, okay? You know, it changes. I've thought I was a great parent when our kids were children, and I found out how horrible I was when they became teenagers. Okay? Parenting teens is a whole different scenario because we have to understand their season of development. God created them to be tiny human beings, independent, atr- aspiring to become adults. And then we have dads and moms who, dads want to live through their kids, their sports values, moms want them to always be their little baby. And we had all these dynamics. They don't, they don't have a chance to become an aspiring, independent young adult anymore. Developing the God-given talents that they've been given because mom and dad's playing that role that's very different than what they should be playing at this stage of their life. And the consultant role, you know, I, I love both of our kids, but I don't get as much overlap time as I once got. But this is normal. This is healthy. You know, it would not be normal for us to still be living together at this stage of their life. Now, what happens when we follow God's intended plan? This serves as a launching pad because we use the influence early in their lives. It's so much easier when we look at the research today, how many children, how how many adults who are Christ followers came to Christ from this stage and below? From a child, 12 years of age and younger, how many are in children's ministry? Raise your hands. Children's ministry. Key, key areas to try to reach that child's heart. To reach them for Christ. And better yet, hopefully you're reaching them, showing mom and dad how to reach them for Christ. So that they can find Christ at this stage of their life. Because the older they get, the less probable or less likely that decision takes place. But this is God's launching pad. But it's resulted in our plan and our painful conversations because many parents get stuck in the cop mode and take it over into the teenage years. They want to continue to play the cop showing consequences and not trusting their children to have a little bit more freedom, putting them out on the field too long. This actually results in more prodigals, which is the painful part of those conversations because we don't transition to the season of life that God has expected for them. Now, if this is the influence area, the question becomes for us is what's in this influential space and how intentional can we be with these moments? How intentional can these shared moments be? Deuteronomy 6, thus the D6 portion, says parents and grandparents are to teach their children. Uh, I think the King James, New King James says teach your children. The NIV says impress upon them, but it means a continuous influential intentionality of saying, I want to shape them. If I were to pass out Play-Doh to everybody and say, hey, I want you to form and fashion the worst meal you've ever eaten, you'd begin to go to work. Because you'd go back in your mind, you'd find that cafeteria meal, because it certainly wouldn't be one that your spouse made. I know you wouldn't go there. That would not be it. You can find that cafeteria or that banquet food. You'd start shaping that thing out and you would begin to, to form and make it, but it would take a period of time, you know, 15, 20 minutes. You don't just, all of go, boom. We don't do that with our parenting either. Our parenting takes place over time. My daughter is uh, 22 right now. She is really good with children, but she tells us all the time, I don't like babies. She says, I'm, I think she's scared of being around the little bitty ones. And so we were joking around one day, and she said, you know, Dad, she says, I think I'm going to adopt so I can skip the whole baby thing. I said, really? I said, so what age child do you think you're going to adopt? She said, I think 18. <laughs> I said, so you're just going to parent them all like in one year and then, then pay for college? She says, oh yeah, college. I'll adopt them when they're 22. <laughs> so I like, okay, good for you, good for you. Uh, she'll make a great mom though. But we, the point is, we take experience after experience, conversation after conversation. Remember this. Some conversations you have with your children, your kids will never remember. But if you don't have them with them, they'll never forget. It's really, really important. We've got to be intentional with our kids with this. Remember this rule, the 80-20 rule, okay? Think about parents and grandparents. We're teaching. What are we teaching? We're going to mix both fun and we're going to mix biblical teaching. I would love for you to, at whatever time of overlap you have, And I know this becomes really hard. Here's the most difficult part. When the teenage years are much smaller, every time you see your child, you need to tell them, you need to clean your room. you got to do homework. And you're always giving them corrective conversations. I want you to work work on changing this into 80% affirming, 80% connecting, and only 20% correcting. Okay? The problem is, if every time they see you, they know that they're going to get in trouble be told a chore to do, a task to do, be torn down, they're going to avoid you, and that sliver is going to get smaller. I'm not saying those conversations don't need to be had, but guys, I'm going to talk to us for just a minute. Ladies, you can turn me off. Guys, we're utilitarian. I see our son. Son, you didn't take out the garbage last night. That's just, any other parent have that problem with your son? Oh. (laughs) See? So, you know, the first thing we do, utilitarian, we just address the problem. We just think that's what we're supposed to do. We're bottom line oriented. But even though our sons are men, young men, they still have hearts. They still are developing personalities. And they still need to know that we have a connection. We have a relationship. And so we need to have those conversations with them before we get into the corrective. When I mentioned Bruce Johnston earlier, I talked about J.H. Ranch. would highly recommend you check out that ministry. Uh, It's really phenomenal. It's based out of Birmingham, but the ranch is actually in Northern California. I was invited to go out there as a publisher over the very topic I told you about, uh, one of the people that he had hired and was doing some teaching said, Bruce, you really need to put your talks into a book. Can I invite a publisher who's published our... And it, it, we had published uh, Rodney Cox and John Trent, and Rodney was the guy out there. And he invited me out, and they paid our way to go out there. And this is quite an expensive trip. I think just the cost out there for the two of us was somewhere over 2000 or so. dollars. Plus, you got your flight out there, that kind of thing. I'm sitting thinking, there's not many... Fathers and sons, moms and daughters, or moms and sons. You cross over. It's a parent-child experience. Not many people can afford to do that, but every one of the parents that we were cabining with, bunking with, they all thought they were bringing their sons or daughters to be fixed. Now, not that they were broken, but they really thought, hey, they're going to be developed. They're going to they're learn something here. And what they did not realize is that Bruce and the whole philosophy of the ranch said, we're going to spend time working on the moms and dads at the same time we're working on their sons and daughters. And I saw a real transformation from that Sunday when we arrived to the dads at prayer time when we were at Sunday night at the end of the day. Hey, pray for my son. He's got to do this. I'm counting on this week to do that for them. And they just filled in the blanks. He's having trouble in school. He's dating the wrong person. But by the time Wednesday or Thursday got there, The prayer time in our cabin was, man, I got to spend better quality time with my son. I don't usually put down my computer very often, and I'm always talking to my son across the screen, or I'm not giving him the time. And all of a sudden, it changed from the heart of the student to the heart of the parent. And that's what I'm asking us to realize is that we always tend to think about the other generation when we need to be working on ourselves. Discipleship is about crossing those generational lines. We use the term generational discipleship. It's not about the next generation. It's about every generation. We've got, to be gener- we've got to be discipling across the stage to peers. I need to be discipling my peers. My peers need to be discipling me. And only then, in the overflow of what I am discipled, can I share with my son and daughter. I can't share what I don't have. So the 80-20 rule is really, really helpful to mix intentional conversation, fun with life, along with teachable moments. So we think about the generational discipleship like I've talked about here. How many are part of this generation by chance in this room? Uh, The greatest generation, born between 1928 and 1945. Anyone in here? Okay, just out of curiosity, there are about 41 million. That's declining. There's not anybody new joining that group? Just Okay, never mind. Sorry. How about boomers, 1946 to 1964? How many of you in this room? Okay, there are 72 million of you, okay? How many are in Generation X? I'm in this generation here, 1965 to 1976. And by the way, everybody reports these numbers slightly differently, okay? In fact, Barna tends to throw these out of whack, and I don't like Barna's numbers at all. Um, I'd love for him to give reasons for why he did it, and I love Barna's research. But uh, everybody has a slightly different variation. Generation X is uh, 1965 to 1976. There 41 million. And by the way, I think you'll notice in here that it's always the most narrow generation, okay? Um, In fact, our generation often feels overlooked because there is such a small window here between 65 and 76. Everybody talks about the boomers, they talk about the greatest generation, and they certainly talk about the millennials in here from 1977 to 1994. Any millennials? Yes. Okay, so we have the millennials in there. Now, there are reasons for each one of these. Um, Anybody want to tell me why the boomers were named as boomers? Came back from the war and they did what? That's right. We're trying to be very tactful in church, aren't we? They had lots of babies. Good for you. And so literally coming back from the war, they, they had lots of babies. And so their generation goes from 1946 to 1964 because 1965, what happened? Okay, that was going on. But what ended the actual generation of this era from boomers? No? Good, good, good historians in here. You guys know it. The FDA recognized and ratified, gave approval. What does the FDA do? It gives, uh, when it confirms a drug? Yeah, the pill. The pill was recognized by the FDA as a means of contraception in 1965. And so that ended the boomer generation as we know it and thus joined the the start of the Generation X. Now we have Generation Z which goes from roughly 1995 until whatever year that that ends. By the way, this is the one that Barna has a really, very different than everybody else. Most say 1994, 95, 96. Barna actually shows Generation Z starting at the year 2000. So the big difference for him. Um, But that one started. Now what's interesting about this and the reason why I bring this up Anybody from Generation Z? I didn't ask that question. I didn't think so, but it's possible. If you were born in 1995, then you are just most likely, think it through, go back to 2005, uh, 2015. Now we're at 2017. This person would be 22, which ironically is the age of my daughter. Okay, She's now one year beyond college. So if your church is ministering to college-age kids, they're in Generation Z. Don't treat them like millennials okay? There's so much emphasis going into studying the millennials, and I think we do need to study that because of the transfer of leadership that's occurring, but do not treat any one of these generations like the other. They're all distinctly different. That's why they're named. They're not just named as periods of time. Uh, they all have certain, certain reasons for, for their namings, and Generation Z will one day be named for what identifies them. Um, when we think about it, I want us to understand that phrase I just gave you. Yes. You know, I, yeah, you know, I don't remember the specific reason on that one, and I'm not going to make anything up on, on, on the spot. I know this is the trans, trans, uh, transitional generation where we get into more electronics approaching the end of the millennium, and I really want to go back to you know, getting into that computer age, which happened in the 80s and so forth, and I really believe that was a key component to it, but I don't remember for certain what made that one shorter. I should look. I think I'm I'm just so stunted by people overlooking us. I've never thought about it too much. So that's right. Too painful to go look at. Uh, So the boomers here, I've drew an arrow down to the millennials. I want to repeat that phrase. It's not about the next generation. It's about every generation. If you spend as a church so much time focusing on the millennials or the generation Z and you marginalize the greatest or the boomers, you're hurting your church. So what I would challenge you to think about is we we don't give millennials a lot of credit for certain key things. And by the way, I I heard from another speaker uh, in the last week to 10 days. He said, all of you guys who are picking on the millennials out there for for, uh, wanting the participation trophies, just remember which generation gave them to them, okay? (laughs) So be very cautious before we are so quick to dump on a different generation. But one thing I do know about millennials is they are so willing to listen to another generation, they love listening to people who are older with them who can pass along expertise. And so if you want to really emphasize the boomers to pass along marriage mentoring to the millennials, what a powerful item that could be. You know, and and so we got to recognize the use of discipleship across generations, and the millennials then can disciple back up to the boomers and show them how to text. Okay, um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, but there are items in here that the millennials have a lot more expertise on that can help. I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but it took a long time for us to convince the parents of my parents to get on to texting so they can text their grandkids on that. But there are so many different areas that we can learn from each other, and that's what it should be about, discipling. And I really believe the millennials could teach the Generation X, the boomers, and the greatest generation what the Bible has to say about social issues that we tend to overlook. And a lot of that comes from the minor prophets, and we just don't deal with the minor prophets The millennials know how to dig that in and go, you know what, it's really good that you're given to a mission field, but we're overlooking a mission field right here at our doorsteps because we don't care about the social issues facing us. And they will remind us, and there's a great balance that will begin to happen there if we listen to one another. And then Generation X down to the millennials, that transfer of leadership that's going on right now in business and in ministry in a very, very powerful way. We get some very, very encouraging news. When I look out there at the landscape of lead pastors who are coming up who are in that millennial generation, I'm excited about it. I really am. In fact, our pastor at our church, I've been in our church for 14 years, and the pastor we had, tremendous guy, very well-known, very published. He had been there 38 years, finished well, but handed off the reins to a millennial who is doing a tremendous job three or four years into this, and they're sharing co-teaching roles and so they each share pulpit time in there. The handoff has been beautiful, and, and they're, they're learning from each other. And that's what it's about. And I, I missed one here, but everywhere through this, you also have peer-to-peer mentoring that can happen between all generations, between Generation Z, between boomers teaching each other. Uh, I was at a conference in uh, Florida earlier this week, and I was teaching, and uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on leadership. I got a PhD in leadership and I spent about 20,000 hours studying the life of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. And so I'm very, very involved in that area. And I opened up and part of my, my change that I'm gonna talk about tomorrow comes from my doctoral studies. How do you lead a culture through change? If ever there was a culture that did not wish to have change, it was the 1950s and 60s and it was based on all the wrong reasons, tradition, religion, uh, thinking it, 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 this is the way it always has been. And if I can speak very openly here in a very you know, tough situation, neither the Caucasians or the African Americans thought change would even be probable. One didn't think it should happen. One thought it should, but didn't think it would be probable. And King came along at the very beginning of his time when he was in Montgomery. He did not have a position of authority or influence. He was just a young pastor, his first pastorate. And he spoke with a place that did not have a title, did not have power, and he began to see change happen. And after we talked through change a little bit, it created between a generation, uh, uh, there was two guys in the greatest generation and two guys in the boomers that was in the talk I was in this, this week in Destin. And on a break, they got out in the lobby of the hotel we're in. We're in a conference center setting, and they went at it over some of the things that the churches were facing with race relations even today. And I heard them over talk, you know, talking, overhearing them listen. And that's what we need to do is mentor across those platforms. You know, we've got a lot of work to do in each one of these areas. And when we understand that discipleship can happen at every level, and that's one of the reasons why even though we're known as a family ministry emphasis, we're more known as generational discipleship because we believe discipleship can happen at the various stages of discipleship, skipping a generation, peer-level discipleship, each one of these areas. Now, Richard Ross just released a new book, and I want to hit this. It's really helpful for positioning our church for real change. If we begin to challenge all generations to get involved, then we look at this next stage, and it becomes really, really important here, is that Dr. Richard Ross, he's a professor at Southwestern Seminary And he released a book um, where he discusses ministry in thirds. And this is the concept that I have up here by him, ministry in thirds. You'll see this in a slightly different way that I've been teaching for several years. And he put it more succinctly. I'm jealous when somebody makes it more simple. And he said, if you're a student pastor, he said, your goal is not just to minister to students, but also to their parents. Now, most of us have been teaching that for quite some time, but he added a a unique layer to this. He said, you need to spend one-third of your time ministering to students, one-third of your time, uh, or excuse me, the students should have one-third of their time being developed by the student pastor, one-third of their time being developed by their parents, and one-third of their time being developed by other members of the congregation. Okay? That means that you are going to find some person in the congregation to adopt and mentor. But you're also going to find somebody who you can be mentored by. It's not just you teaching, but you being taught. That's that generational from the previous slide and this slide. So if you're a children's pastor, and if I were to ask you your job description, you'd probably say, oh, I'm here to minister to children. You're here to minister to children and their parents. Because we just said, who's going to shape the influence of that child when they're in the caregiver and the cop mode is going to be the parents. They're going to determine... Their political views, their ethical views, their views on race, their view on authority, their view on politics, their view on church, the view of the pastor, their view of sports, their view of money, and ultimately their biblical worldview. And if a parent has that much influence, I think I would be trying to figure out how to influence the parent in order to influence the child that I'm teaching. Do we understand that principle? If we get that, our churches would be a different culture today. And Richard Ross says, do your ministry in thirds. So while he wrote it for students, this also applies to children. It applies to college age. It applies to adults across the board. So I ask the question here, how well is your congregation prepared for all generations? How well is your congregation prepared for all generations? Down at our table, I'll offer a free gift for you uh, for as many of these as we have with us, it's called a church health assessment. And um, if you you would like, you can download a copy off of uh, the website. It's called d6family.com forward slash DNA. You can download a PDF or an Excel spreadsheet and it self-scores on the Excel spreadsheet. But it's going to ask you about 10 different areas of, of family ministry and discipleship ministry related to what I'm talking about. If I were a church leader in here, I would download enough copies to survey 15% plus of your church. That would be the goal, somewhere around 15% plus. So all of your teachers, all of your key influential volunteers, obviously your staff, your leadership board or your deacon board uh, would all be included on that. Have them all take it and then merge the results into one master document. Okay, you can self-score this. And at the end, what it's going to do for you is that you're going to rate... Uh, where you are on, say, um, family equipping is a biblical priority, and it's going to ask you three questions about it, and the combined answers from those will determine, are you healthy, are you at risk, or are you dying in that area? And then it'll give you helps for what you can do and places you can dig deeper for even more information on that. So, you know, as I travel, one of the things I do sometimes, because it's not always great weather, is I like to find a mall to go walking in. Just kind of stretch my legs. And sometimes while I'm there, I think, well, let me stop at this store and grab so-and-so. So So you walk up to the mall directory. And I look on the mall directory. And let's say, like, I I really needed, uh, two months ago, I needed a new pair of tennis shoes. And I thought, okay, I'm going to find the shoe store I'm looking for. And I found the shoe store. Now, once I found the shoe store, I've got my destination. What am I missing? Where I'm located, okay? It's no different than when I pick up my phone. We're all accustomed to pulling up our map and going, okay, I'm going to be traveling, and I need to punch in my destination, but if we didn't have this little blue dot, what color is it on Androids? I don't know. I'm just I'm being, I'm being serious. What color is the dot on Androids? Is it blue also? Okay, I'm just curious. Without the blue dot, we wouldn't know where we are in order to get to our destination. What most churches miss... They read the books and they go, oh, I know what we need. I need discipleship. I need marriage help. I need this. But they don't know how to get there. And so the first place is where is your blue dot for your church? This will establish your blue dot. Or the little black and gold little diamond that you see on the mall directories that says, you are here. All you want to do is figure out you are here. And then we can work through the change to get to where we know we need to be. In part two of this, we're going to walk through the eight steps in the morning at 8.15. How do we we lead our church through change? How do we make the necessary steps in order to lead our congregation through change? As I stated, my studies have been in leadership. The hardest thing any ministry leader ever does is to inspire a group of people to discover what they need to do and then change their behaviors to get there. And tomorrow morning, we're going to walk through the eight steps to get there and what happens. I'll give you one little appetizer on it. Dr. Henry Cloud said, people uh, will not change until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. (laughs) And for many, many people, the pain has not become great enough at this point to get there. Let me just pause and see what questions you, you each have about anything we've talked about so far. That is my session. I'm not going to go longer. I don't have more content just to fill it in. I normally do this in 45 minutes, so I'm just going to do a Q&A very briefly here and then let you guys go. Yes? to
0: what you're going to share tomorrow because, you know, you were saying about you studied What motivated you to do your dissertation on that area?
1: Good question. Good question. The question was what motivated me to do my uh, dissertation on the area of change. And, um... When I was studying leadership, when I first started my Ph.D. program at Dallas Baptist University, God had kind of given me a little bit of a, talent's probably the wrong word, but as a young minister, I was able to navigate conflict within churches and across church lines. Even when I was on the board for our state clergy, if there was a problem between a church and a board, I was often sent in to help deal with the resolution of that. So my initial thought was conflict resolution. And my premise was that you could solve conflict resolution if the attitude of the heart of the one approaching was right, easier than if you went in with it wrong. If I went in to punish or put them in their place, like most people do, it's going to be destructive. But I've found that when you go in with a heart of wanting to redeem nine... 19 out of 20, 29 out of 30, the outcome is really healthy. And so I began to think through that. And then I realized that conflict resolution seemed to be between one person and another person or a small group and another small group. And I thought on a grander scale, leadership needs to engage culture. And I began to ask the question, as I work as in ministry, and now I'm a denominational leader, what's the most entrenched culture that we see out there? Traditional churches and denominations even more so. We just don't like change. And so I began to ask, what does it take to move a group of people into change? And so I began to ask the question, where have we seen that happen in history? And my first thought, and I'm giving you way more than you want, but my first thought was, I, I, well, I you know, at Dallas Baptist, our, our PhD in leadership, they take you to Washington, D.C. Uh, well, the first year you study biblical servant leadership on Dallas campus. The second year you study um change management in washington dc and you do it through the eyes of our founding fathers and one of the things i learned there was i know our american history pretty well but i'd forgotten that our colonies were planted as british extensions they were british colonies and people wanted they were proud british citizens and it took a lot for them to reach the point they didn't like what was happening to them from their uh, home country and when Our founding fathers suggested that we form our own country. That was not well received. And in fact, it took from the time that we finally got the Declaration of Independence another 10 to 15 years to find a constitution. And it wasn't until the Civil War, when people went off to fight in the Civil War, they fought as Maine men, Virginia men, Tennessee men. They didn't fight as Americans, but they went away from that war calling themselves Americans. So it was almost 100 years before our country got to that point. And so I was going to look at it through the eyes of our founding fathers, specifically Thomas Jefferson, but he lived to, to be a too old of a guy, and he wrote too much. And in a Ph.D. work, you've got to raid everything the person wrote, their primary and secondary sources, and it was just too daunting. So I couldn't do it in the time period given. I also s- considered studying William Carey and the practice of sati that he helped out while widow burning, uh, widows would compelled to throw themselves on the pyre and kill themselves in order not to be a burden to their family, and he helped out all that. But again, reading the primary sources, they're not digitized, that would have meant going to Bengali and India and reading those, and that's not practical. So my next one was I'd read a biography of King, and I thought, what better era than the civil rights, who many people felt religiously things should stay the way they are, that there was a difference in race, tradition legislation, you name it, all the rules were stacked against any change. And the change came organically, both from the Caucasian and the African American side. King did not divide our country, he actually pulled people together and began to move the needle in a significant way. So yeah, I just uh, about six weeks ago gave my research, I delivered it at the National Civil Rights Museum over in Memphis, it was really enjoyable to be a part of that discussion. There were several others delivering it too. So, yeah, if you want to get me talking about something, let's let's talk about Dr. King. So, you know, anyway, we can, we can go a lot of ways. Every, every person we study in history has warts. I want to remind people of that. There's not a person alive we can't study who has it, including any one of you and I in this room. So, yes, sir, you had your hand up.
0: Well, this is kind of, kind of a diverged bat.
1: Sure. Let, let, me, let me state the question again out loud. He's asking about the 80-20 rule, and I want to correct maybe a misperception What I was teaching was 80% positive, 20% corrective. Right. Okay? And so, not not 80 negative. Uh,
0: Yeah, it should be positive 80. Right, and and then corrective 20,
1: right. But don't don't mistake that doing, the question was, when we go and do service projects, it's like 80% work and only 20% fun. I wouldn't equate the 80%, I wouldn't equate work to negative. Work is a positive. In fact God gave us work in Genesis as a positive it later became negative as a result of sin some of the results to it but work is a positive you know there's a lot there for developing from athletes work side you know biblically work is a is a reward I mean it really is so I would I would think that's a positive teaching and affirming what they do in the work can be very very positive so even at the ranch experience or youth camp part of that is going and enjoying you work, you do some things, you study, and then you also have some classes and or chapel, those kinds of It's a blend. When Jesus, one of Jesus's greatest criticisms from the Pharisees of the day was that he engaged people and he just socialized with them. He fed them when they thought he should just be preaching or correcting them. I think that's part of our model is he's like, I need to feed their their stomach before I feed their heart. And that's part of that nurturing of that 80%. percent we got to feed the fun a little bit. Once John Maxwell uh, said it really well, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. You know, That's part of the care is just having fun with people. If I just walked up and instantly started just being, you know, hey, let's do this in your church, you need to do that, but I didn't find out about your church, I didn't find out about your family, they wouldn't think too much of me. And it's, why do we assume less of our kids just because we already know them and we're related to them? But we do. We just jump right into the sermons, or, or the other. So, okay, one more, and then we'll we'll dismiss, and then you can guys can ask me one on one any questions you'd like, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. Sure. You know, the question is, if it's not about events, it is about changing culture. How can we get our churches to stop focusing on events, to where retreats are the end all, youth camp is the end all, being at church is the end all? Um, I, I would do it this way. Um, I would, if I were really dedicated to this, I would ask the pastor, this is taboo, I get it, I I realize you guys are going to toss me out after this, but if the pastor can change their messages just a little bit to where it's not just a lecture, it's not just a sermon, but they can actually model, whether it's with a video or, I, I talked about in the last hour, transform the stage. So that in the midst of the sermon, you show people how to respond when they're not at church. I talked about in the last session, uh, getting two car seats, rip them out of a van and put them on the stage. And you show people how to have Deuteronomy 6 conversations in the van ride. You know, you put a dinner table up there and you show them how to have devotion at the dinner table once a week. Because most moms and dads, they want to do those things, they just don't know how. I'll challenge you a step further. You as ministry leaders forget that the basic fundamentals are not fundamentals to the parents. If you could ask your parents how many of them actually pray with their kids apart from a mealtime, you'd be shocked to know the results. So show them how to pray. Pastors, if you're talking about prayer, pause and say, hey, here's how you can pray with your daughter. Here's how you can pray with your wife. Here's how you can pray with your son. Here's how you can pray with your grandson who's 500 miles away. Here's FaceTime praying together. And we actually just take three to four minutes or five minutes out of the sermon and lean into life and show them how to do life. Show a parent how to tuck their child in at bed at night and read to them and pray with them. And have a bed, a single bed and a nightstand and a lamp on the stage of of your church. If you start doing that, your church is going to become known for, they care about my family, they care about relationships. You transform that into a marriage dispute up there on stage and show them how to navigate through a marriage dispute. So it starts there, but then it goes and says, hey, are we going to make church excellence? Are we going to make home excellent when they leave church? And then we lean in and give them tools. So not only do we show them and model them, If I can, I'll give a brief commercial for one of the things we do really, really well. D6 also has a curriculum. And we totally dismantled the traditional Sunday school as we knew it back in 2004. And we launched a family-aligned curriculum so that those conversations that overlap. You know that ride home? I would actually do this. We're riding home. Hey, what did you guys study in Sunday school today? Oh, they know. But you know what they can do? You know what word does they use to get you off topic? I don't know. (laughs) And dad's up there going, oh, yeah, what are we having for lunch today? And the conversation moved on and missed an opportunity. But if everybody is studying Abraham and Isaac, dad can go, hey, didn't you study about Abraham and Isaac? Oh, yeah, yeah, dad, we, we did. And what did that teach us today? Oh, now we've got a conversation going. We can toss that tennis ball back and forth and really begin to have a real-life conversation. Or if we're studying about, you know, Noah and the flood, when the son comes home and says, hey, they made fun of me for praying just before my lunch meal in cafeteria today. Well, you know what? Last Sunday we were talking about building that boat. Noah got laughed at quite a bit, didn't he? And all of a sudden we can bring a, a connection back into life, but we can't do that if we don't put a tool in mom and dad's hands. Here's what happens at most churches today. church with two to three kids walks into your church. Their children go off to this class, off to this class, and the adults go off to this class. And when they drive home, you forget what it's like for a new Christ follower to have this conversation. Little little Ethan's in the back seat going, hey dad, dad. Today, our, our teacher talked about Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac was going to be uh, sacrificed on this altar. And uh, right at the last minute, you know, the angel came and stopped stopped Abraham from, from sacrificing his son, and he gave him this animal over in the bush. Dad, do you remember the animals? What, what type of animal that was? All of you quickly went through, and you got what? Ram. ram. Yeah, it was a ram. Dad's going, I have no clue. We study 1 Corinthians 5 today. I have no idea. And he's going to move on, and quickly Ethan's going to go, well, it's not important to Dad, therefore it probably shouldn't be important to me. Because that's where I learned my biblical worldview. But if Dad were studying Abraham and Isaac, he'd say, hey, it was a ram. Not that we cheer for the rams in the NFL, but no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. kidding. Um, And he would say it's a ram, and God provides, and he can go into a teachable moment. And really make a difference there. But that's because we align the conversation so that mom and dad are getting a deeper level of what the students are getting. And we put a tool in their hand. On Tuesday, we send out an email to parents of children free with three more ideas to connect. Home Connections put in the hands of the teacher to send to all the parents and say, Hey, read this, pray this, do this with your kids once this week. We're just trying to align them so that it's not about events. It's about a cultural change. But the only way we're going to do that is for the pastors to lean in and for us to put tools in their hands. That's how we make a difference there.
0: Thank you all for listening. If I can help you, let me know. I'll be glad to. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from D6 Conference's track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download their free church health assessment PDF at discipleship.org D6. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.